Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Amen. The text this morning is Psalm 95. These are the words of God. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter my rest." Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We open our hearts before you now. We ask you to open your word to us with open hearts. We pray that you do this because we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. So throughout the New Testament, we are given multiple cautions and warnings. We are told repeatedly that we are to take our covenant lessons from what happened to our older brothers, the Jews. The things written down in Scripture were written for our edification as examples to us, which means that we need to learn to read the narrative right. We are never told that the Jews could fall away, but that Christians cannot. We are never told that Jews could fall away, but everything is different now in the New Covenant, and Christians cannot fall away. So we should know that these warnings throughout the New Testament do in fact apply to us, not as though the decree of God's election could be altered, but that the warnings about our place in the visible covenant apply to us because our position there is exactly that of the Jews. So our position in the visible church is identical to the position of the Jews in the visible church, the visible nation of Israel. This will become plainer as we go along working through this text. Now, I take this psalm as a psalm of David and may refer to it as a psalm of David, although the psalm itself does not have that uh, ascription. It does not attribute it to David. That connection is made later in the book of Hebrews in 4.7. So Hebrews 4.7 identifies this psalm as a psalm of David. So to repeat, I want you to hang on to this as we work through the psalm. It's a It's an important distinction to grasp, and many people fail to grasp it, and they get themselves into a hopeless muddle. To repeat, the truly regenerate, the elect of God, can never fall away. But members of the visible church can and do fall away. Members of the visible covenant people of God can and do apostatize. They can fall away. The warnings in the New Testament, the warnings in the Old Testament and New Testament, are not warnings about an imaginary impossibility. The warnings are there for a reason. The warnings are addressed to visible saints in the visible church who have faces and names, and the apostles and the preachers are beseeching them, 
Don't, don't turn away. Don't fall away as your fathers did in the wilderness. Now, if someone falls away and dies in their sin, then we can conclude, we must conclude, that they were never among us in truth. They were never among the elect of God. But it's not true to say that they were never among us in any sense whatever. So there's an important distinction. The elect of God cannot fall away, but visible saints can and do fall away. And that's what this psalm is about. So let's begin with the obvious. The biblical faith, biblical faith is a corporate affair. The godly looks around himself and he says to others, come. So this is an invitation given by one saint to other saints. Come, let us worship. Come, let us sing unto the, God, uh, unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come before his presence. It's all let us come, let us bow down, let us worship. This is a corporate reality. We need many more in, to, to gather around in order to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We want to make a joyful noise and we want to make an adequate joyful noise. And in order to make an adequate joyful nor noise, we need many more people than we have. This is uh, one of the great incentives to world evangelism. That is, we need more people in the choir. We, we need more people singing. We're not loud enough yet. God's goodness is so overwhelming. God's goodness is so great. God's mercy to us is so uh, majestic that we are not doing anywhere. We don't have enough Christians to do enough justice to this yet. We need to evangelize other people so that we have more people singing. Come, let us worship the Lord our Maker. So we make that joyful noise with psalms. So we use the we use the psalter. We use the songbook that God gave us. We're not limited to that, but we're certainly not permitted to abandon the psalter in order to go chasing after our own music. We are to make that joyful noise, he says, with psalms. Now, why do we do this? Because the Lord is a great God, a king above all other gods. Verse 3, the deeps are in his hand. The wealth of the deepest mines are his. Verse 4, I think the strength of the hills is probably talking about minerals. It's probably talking about what the, what the hills contain. The, the wealth of the, of the mines, the wealth of the hills are, are in his hand. He is the one who fashioned the oceans, and his were the hands that formed the dry land. Verse 5. So then, the great invitation is given again. It's issued again. Come, let us kneel. Worship is corporate. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before our maker, verse 6. And I want to um, emphasize that what we say in the creed, um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that, that the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of God making everything, the, God, the doctrine of God speaking everything into existence is an absolutely foundational doctrine to everything else. God is sovereign over all things because he spoke and it was. The created order is not, this, not to be identified with him, but it is entirely something that he invented, he created, he invented, he fashioned. So, and we worship, worship him for that reason. One of the reasons for a decline in worship is because we've been drifting away from the doctrine that God is our maker. So, let us kneel before our maker, verse 6. He is our God. 
We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his flock, verse 7. Now, up through the first half of verse 7, the voice is that of one of the Lord's people inviting all the others of the Lord's people to gather together in worship. This is an example of the psalmist uh, saying to everyone else, come, let us worship God, let us worship God. It is the voice of one sheep to the other sheep. We now come, in, in the transition, the turn from verse 7 to 8, we see that the voice, is now be, the voice of the psalmist, the point of view, uh, becomes the voice of the shepherd. Do not harden your heart as you did before, verse 8. So we have this jubilant gathering. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. The Lord is our maker. He is a great God. This is all wonderful. And it is wonderful. There's a great revival. And one of the things that we see in Scripture is when God's people assemble before the Lord, God says, I don't think you're going to do what I say. And the people say, yes, yes, we're going to do what you say. And we've all gathered here. We've responded to the invitation. We will obey your commandments. We will keep your word. And the Lord says, I don't think you're going to. Yes, we, we are going to do everything. We're going to do everything you say. And so you have a, a cautionary word. A, the turn of voice happens as we get to this place between seven and eight. It's the voice of a stern shepherd. Do not harden your heart the way you did before, verse eight, as your fathers did before you, verse nine. There's an ambig- now, there's an ambiguity in verse 10. Did they grieve the Lord for 40 years in the wilderness, or did they wander for 40 years because they had grieved him? Uh, I take it as the latter. I, take, uh, I believe that God relegated them to 40 years in the wilderness because of the grief they gave him at the beginning of the 40 years, which we're going to consider in a moment. I'm going to explain that in a moment. These people err in their hearts, verse 10, and as a consequence... God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Verse 11. God swore. Now, this is not speaking of the people that David is addressing at his time. It's talking, David is talking, and God is speaking through him about the people that did not enter his rest some centuries before. So God swore. Now, I want you to note something here. God's swearing. God swore in his wrath. You're not going to get in. You're not going in. No way. And the caution is given to the the people of David's era. And then in Hebrews, the caution is reiterated again to the people of the Christians of the first century. And then again this morning, the same caution is delivered. Do not harden your heart. When God's word comes to you, when God's word comes at you, humble yourself, receive it. Don't reject it. Don't reinterpret it. Don't massage it. Don't spin control it. Just accept the word of God. So why do I take it as God was um, frustrated with these people, God was angry with these people at the beginning of the 40 years, and that's why there was a 40-year tenure in the wilderness? As Israel was fresh out of Egypt, they tempted the Lord because of a lack of water. So they, uh, and, and it's easy for us to bog, you know, boggle at this because we're reading it in a book, but we do, this, we do the same thing. Um, the Israelites were on the banks of the Red Sea. Moses had, ju- had, Moses had just been used as the instrument of God to destroy that generation's superpower. Egypt was a hegemonic superpower, and Egypt behind them was a smoking ruin. At one point, Pharaoh's advisors came to him and said, 
Don't you, don't you understand yet, Pharaoh, that Egypt is done? Don't you understand that this man with the staff has wrecked you? Don't you get that? And so finally, the people of Israel leave, millions of them. They come up to the banks of the Red Sea. Then Pharaoh hardens his heart again and chases them with his army. And God delivers them. The Red Sea divides. The people march through. The sea closes up again, drowning Pharaoh and his army. Now, you're an average Israelite. What have you seen? Over the course of the last few months, over the course of the last six months, what have you seen? You've seen the firstborn of Egypt killed. You've seen frogs all over Egypt. You've seen locusts. You've seen hail. You've seen, you've seen it all. And then you marched out of Egypt, and you saw an ocean divide, and you marched in between, and you get to the other side, and what's the thought that occurs to you? I need to grumble about the water. I need to grumble about something, because I'm thirsty now. I, I, I know you just did all that, but what have you done for me lately? What have you done for lately? Well, that's what they did. So they grumbled because of a lack of water, and the place where they did this had two different names assigned to it, Masa and Meribah. It says in Exodus 17, 7, And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord. There's the testing of the Lord, the tempting of the Lord, because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now think, think back over the history. What do you want? <laughs> Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And you give them one sign, they will ask for two. You give them two signs, they'll ask for four. That's, the issue is faith, trust in God or not, not what you see with your eyes. That generation saw more miracles done in a, slight, uh, a, a small period of time than I suspect any other generation ever. All right? These millions of Israelites saw more marvels from the sky than any other people have ever seen. And they still grumbled. So... In Deuteronomy 6, 16, it says, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. In Massa. So, despite their provocation of him in this, the Lord did not relegate them to a generation spent in the wilderness yet. That came about a year later, after the episode of the return of the unbelieving spies. So there was a lot of activity in the first year after Israel left Egypt. And there were many opportunities for grumbling and disobedience, which they took advantage of. In Numbers 14, it says this, Numbers 14, 22 and 23, because all those men which have seen my glory, notice that, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about people who've read about it in a book. I'm talking about that generation, all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. So these people saw what I did in Egypt, and they saw what I did to Egypt. They saw what I did for Israel, taking them through the Red Sea, and they saw the miracles that, that provided for them in the wilderness. <clears throat> and have tempted me now these ten times. All right, this is a year into it. So about a year, uh, year into it, they have tempted him these ten times, probably on average once a month. They have tempted me these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. 
because of these 10 times that when they tested the Lord, all within the first year of their time in the wilderness, the Lord sealed them up in that wilderness for 40 years. So if you, if you, look, at the, um, if you look at Psalm 95, the question is um, uh, 40 years long in verse 10. 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart. All right, so if, the, if you connect that with verse 9, and there's an ambiguity, how do you read it, how do you translate it? When your fathers tempted me, prove, my, uh, prove me and saw my work 40 years long. So they, the reason they saw God working for 40 years in the wilderness is because they had provoked him in the first year. Does the 40 years uh, talk about the, the, is it 40 years of provoking or is it one year of provoking that causes them to see God's work and, and sustenance and supplying of them for 40 years in the wilderness? I take it as the latter. So the Lord sealed them up in the wilderness for 40 years. He wanted to toughen them up. He wanted, he wanted the invading force, the, the Israelites who invaded Canaan, to not be an army of slaves. He didn't want them to have a slave mentality in order to get the, the he got the slaves out of Egypt, but he didn't get the Egypt out of the slaves. So all the, all the slaves came out of Egypt, but not all the Egypt was out of the slaves. They said, man, we had a, Pharaoh, Pharaoh offered full employment. Did you understand? Pharaoh offered, we had food. We, we had to build these pyramids, true, but we had, there was food. There was good food. There was delicious food. What do we have here now? That's the mentality of a slave. So God was getting the slavery out of the Israelites for 40 years. And then at the end of that time period, they were equipped to invade Canaan. So the thing that's interesting about this is that the book of Hebrews quotes this psalm multiple times and applies it, and applies it in interesting ways. As this psalm is interpreted and applied by Paul in Hebrews, and yes, I said Paul in Hebrews, that's another subject for another time. Paul in Hebrews, there are multiple layers to the meaning of rest. All right, when, when the book of Hebrews quotes this psalm, he's, he's uh, focusing on the uh, statement, unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. So the, the issue of rest is a very important theme to Hebrews, and it's an important theme in this psalm because God promised the people that they weren't going to get it. All right, so in the psalm itself, the Lord was angry with that generation, and he swore that they would not enter Canaan rest. What is he talking about? When I swore in my wrath, they're not going to enter my rest. Well, among other things, he is swearing that they are not going to enter Canaan rest. They're not going to cross the Jordan. They're not going to get into the promised land. This generation is not going to go into Canaan. There is the antitype. That's the first rest. There's the antitype of this, the fulfillment of this, in the wilderness generation of Christians preparing to invade the world with the gospel in what might be called the Great Commission rest. The Great Commission rest. That's Hebrews 3.14. If I could read it for you very quickly. Hebrews 3.14 says this. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So the end of what? Well, the Jews had been brought out of Egypt. Okay, The Jews had been brought out of Egypt. 
uh, 40 years later, they invaded Canaan. In uh, the new Egypt was Israel. The Christian church was formed at Pentecost around 30 AD. The invasion of the world begins 40 years later, around 70, in 70 AD, when the old temple apparatus is destroyed. So Egypt is finally uh, decisively wiped out in 70 AD. So God takes his people out of Egypt, and he toughens them up for 40 years in the wilderness, and then they invade Canaan. And he does the same thing with the Christian church. The Christian church is brought out of Israel, brought out, made distinct from the nation of Israel. They are toughened up for 40 years. Their leadership is established. God gives them his word just like God gave uh, the word to Moses. God gave the New Testament to the New Testament church. And then 40 years later, they invade. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about if we hold steadfast unto the end. He's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of this period. If we hold steadfast to the end of this period in the wilderness, and Hebrews 3 and 4 and 1 Corinthians 10 are very self-conscious about how we Christians are in our wilderness period just as the Jews were in their wilderness period. And then after this wilderness period, the conquest of the world starts. So the conquest of Canaan starts when Israel invades under Joshua, and Joshua is the Old Testament name. What's the New Testament version of the word Joshua? Jesus. Right, so the invasion of Canaan begins under Joshua. The invasion of the world begins under Joshua, the new Joshua, the greater Joshua, Jesus. So the antitype is the, wil the wilderness generation of Christians preparing for the rest of conquering the world with the gospel in what we can call the Great Commission rest. That's the second kind of rest. Then there's personal salvation rest, personal forgiveness rest. We see that in Hebrews 4, 1 through 3. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise of being left us of, let, um, excuse me, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, that being the Jews in the wilderness. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter that rest. So he's talking here about believers in the wilderness. So you have a Jewish uh, uh, a believer in the wilderness. Let's say his name is Joshua or Caleb. They were the two spies who went into the land. They came back and they believed. And because they believed in the wilderness, they, they believed in the wilderness, they had a promise in the wilderness that they would enter into the rest. There's, that's personal salvation rest. So everyone who believes has entered the rest. Everyone who believes has it already. That's personal salvation rest. Then we have what can be called our corporate weekly foretaste rest. That's in Hebrews 4, uh, 9 and 10. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. I just, I want to just make a quick parenthetical comment here. The word in verse 9 for rest is sabbatismas, so it's Sabbath rest. So you could render it as a Sabbath rest. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath to the people of God. The fourth commandment is not abrogated for Christians. The remain, Christians still have a Sabbath. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why? 
For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Uh, very quickly, I used to take this as uh, a picture of some Pharisee trying to save himself, and then he finally quit trying to save himself. He quit, ceased from his works in verse 10, and he entered into salvation by grace, which is strained and weird. Why, uh, um, why would a Pharisee, abandoning the attempt to save himself, be compared to God creating the world? For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So when God created the world, he labored for six days, and then God rested, and that was the Sabbath rest. And then whatever verse 10 is talking about, it's like God doing that. Well, that, that's strained and weird. It'd be far better, I think, to, to say that Jesus worked for three days and three nights and then entered into his rest in the resurrection, just as God worked for six days and six nights, evening and the morning, for the first day, first day, second day, third day. And then God, at the climax of that, entered into his rest. So God created the world in six days and entered into his rest. And Jesus worked for three days and three nights on the cross through the resurrection. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he entered into his rest. And he did so on what day? First day of the week, the Lord's day, which is why there remains, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why, why do we gather on Sunday? We gather on Sunday, we worship on the Lord's Day because it's the Lord's Day. It was the day the Lord entered into his rest. So there's, there is this weekly foretaste rest, which we are enjoying right this minute. We are enjoying this weekly foretaste rest. We are privileged to enter into the heavenly places, sing praises to God, renew covenant with him. That's a weekly foretaste rest. And then last we have what I take as a final heavenly rest, uh, Hebrews 4.11. And if you read through Hebrews 3 and 4, you'll see all of these rests tightly woven together. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fail after the same example of unbelief. We want to, we want to enter at the last day into the final rest, the complete rest, the, what, what, everything, what all the prophets have been talking about from the very beginning. So what do we have? We have Canaan rest. We have Great Commission rest. We have personal salvation rest. We have weekly worship rest. And we have the final day, the resurrection of the dead rest, when all things are made new. So for the one who believes, all of these should be considered our present possession. If we believe, all of these are ours now. God gave Canaan to Israel. God gave the world to the church. God gives forgiveness of sin to the repentant sinner. God gives us a regular reminder every seven days that everything is accomplished through his work. And finally, God gives us resurrection rest in the new day, in the final day, in the eighth day. And all of it is the grace of God, which means that all of it is rest, not works, lest any man should boast. So what God's people accomplish in this world is built on the foundation of rest. And there's also an interesting uh, typological turn from the Old Covenant to the New. In the Old Covenant, it was six days of labor and then a day of rest. In the New Covenant, it's a day of rest and six days of labor. Everything God gives you the rest first. We, we build, everything we do, we build on the foundation stone of rest. 
So we rest before the Lord, and then the work you do on Tuesday, the work you do on Thursday, is self-consciously being built on the rest that we have enjoyed in God's presence. Jesus does it all. God does it all. And he does it through his instruments. But as it says in Philippians, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we work out what God works in. And we come to worship him, making ourselves available to him, saying, Lord, here we are. This is what worship is, making yourself available to God. You trust God. You open yourself up to God. You surrender it all to God. You lay it all down before God and say, God, now use me. Use me to accomplish your purpose. I want to be an instrument. I don't want to be out there doing volunteer stuff for you and then bringing you stuff that you never asked for, you never want. You don't want to be like a demented cat in the neighborhood that keeps bringing you dead birds that you didn't want. (laughs) That's what will worship is. When, when When we are cooking up things to worship God with, I know what God, the living God wants is a dead bird. And we, t- and we bring it in, no, that's not what I want. I want you to do what I told you to do. I want you to appear before me. I want you to confess your sins. I want you to listen to my word with an open heart, open mind. I want you to open yourself up and say, as Isaiah said, hear my Lord, send me. That's what worship is. I'm available, send me. What, what, is your, what is the message? What is the task? What is the duty you've set before me? Worship is not, we sometimes Uh, jumble praise and worship together. Praise and worship are not the same thing. Praise is when we're extolling God's glory, and praise is a good thing, but it's not the same thing as worship. Worship is what Isaiah did, making himself available to God. Here am I, Lord, send me. That's what worship is. When when Abraham took Isaac to the mountain, and he told the servants, he left the servants at the bottom of the mountain and said, we're going to go up the mountain, and we're going to worship and we're going to return to you. And notice Abraham had faith. We are going to come back. We are going to return to you. He said, we're going to go up and worship. He didn't mean, uh, Isaac didn't say, Father, you, you said we were going to worship. Where, where are the guitars? Where are the, where's the tambourine? Where's the overhead projector? Uh, he didn't mean that we're going to have a praise service. He said, we're going to go up and we're going to do what God said to do. We're, we've made ourselves available. We're going to do what God said. So that's what, that's what worship is. And when we are worshiping, when Christian worship is this. Christian worship acknowledges that God does everything. God does everything through his instruments, but God does everything. And that is why when we come before him at the last day and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, we say, Luke 17, I'm an unworthy servant and I've only done what I was told to do. And everything valuable that I was able to do, it was a gift to me from you. And that's what we're saying when we rest before him. When we come before him, you're not, when you're worshiping God here, you're not striving. Stop striving. You, you're doing things. You're singing. It's, it's strenuous in one sense. It's, we ask you to do things. We, you confess your sins. You sing to the Lord. You, we, we are active in worship. But we want to be active, not striving in our own energy, not striving in our own strength, but rather making ourselves available for God's Holy Spirit to work in us. So a tremendous amount gets accomplished. And it wasn't us. 
By grace are you saved, through faith, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. We do, we do the good works, but we can only do them without exhausting ourselves if we are his workmanship. He works in, we work it out. We are his workmanship, and we do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. So then, let's consider the issue of covenant continuity, which I think is at the heart of understanding this psalm. So as we consider these things, as we think about these things, remember that God's elect cannot be taken from his hand. God's elect cannot be taken from his hand. Your regeneration is not reversible. No one can successfully thwart the work of salvation that God has once begun in a sinner's heart. If God has begun the work in you, he will complete that work in you. God cannot be thwarted if he is determined to save a sinner. That's not going to be undone. When it comes to the final salvation of those he has chosen before the foundation of the world, God is not interruptible. God is not interruptible when he says, I'm going to save Smith or I'm going to save Jones or I'm going to save Murphy, then Smith, Jones, and Murphy are going to be saved. He is, his word is secured. So we are not talking about any kind of interruptible act, saving activity on God's part. But at the same time, something can be thwarted. Something can be thwarted, and the Bible talks about it a lot. Apostasy is a real sin committed by real people. It is not a sin that can be committed by any of God's decretally elect. If God has said before the foundation of the world, that boy's name is in the book of life, then that boy's name is going to stay in the book of life. That's the way it is. It cannot be committed by any of God's decretally elect, but it can be committed by individuals who are covenantally connected to Christ. And these people are addressed in the pages of the New Testament repeatedly. It is not as though they are non-Christians in every sense of the word. Remember that there are Jews and also that there are true Jews, those who are such inwardly by the Spirit in the heart, as Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29. A true Jew, Caiaphas was a Jew, Annas was a Jew, Judas was a Jew. All right, you, could, you could have all these people who were circumcised the eighth day, the, everything was just, every, all their papers were in order. But Paul says a true Jew is one who is one inwardly. The work of the Spirit inwardly has begun. His heart is circumcised. Or to use New Covenant terminology, his heart has been baptized. You've been baptized, well and good. You've been baptized in obedience to the word. That's good too. Is your heart baptized? When you were baptized, did your heart get wet? When you were baptized, did your heart get wet? Is your heart soft before God? This distinction does not disappear in the new covenant. There are baptized Christians who are going to fall away. Now, are they true Christians, regenerate Christians, chosen to holiness before the foundation of the world Christians? Of course not, and let's not be silly. Of course, God, no one can take them out of the Father's hand. If someone is converted to God, they're going to stay converted to God. If someone has been made holy, apportioned, appointed to holiness, to the end of the of course, it's going to stay that way. God's going to bring them through all kinds of dangers, toils, and snares, as Amazing Grace puts it. So, they cannot fall away. But in a group like this, in a group this size, is it possible? 
Is it even likely that there are people whose baptismal papers are in order, but who do not know God, who do not love Jesus, who do not love his word? Is it possible that there are kids who are growing up in the covenant, they've been baptized, they may have been baptized on this very spot, they may have been baptized here, they may have been coming to church every week since they were, as long as they can remember, and then you say, but do you love Jesus? And they would say, but I, I don't know, or I know that I don't. I'm just, I'm conforming to, you know, here I am, and I, I have to wait until I'm 18 or 19 or 20 to start making my own decisions. Well, you have the mark of Jesus on you. Your baptism means something, but it doesn't mean you're automatically in. Your baptism doesn't mean that water substitutes for faith. The only, the only thing that is the active catalyst that secures the salvation, the instrument that God has appointed to secure the salvation of every last man, woman, and child is faith. Your water is the indicator of that faith. It is the seal of that faith. It is a sign of that faith. It is conducive to that faith. It is friends with that faith. But it is not that faith. Faith is what you render to God. That's, faith is how you respond to God. God says, this is my son. This is my gospel. These are my people. Do you, do you want to follow me? And you say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. The New Testament scriptures never say anything like this. In the Old Testament, it was possible to fall away from the covenant, but now in the New Covenant, this is impossible. That is not the way it is. Not at all. Hebrews 10.29 says this, Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye, uh, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Now hold these two things together. Remember that I've told you the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified does not mean election. It cannot mean election because election, uh, the elect cannot fall away. But it also cannot mean nothing. It doesn't mean election, but it doesn't mean nothing. There are people who are sanctified, set apart by the blood of the covenant, who are despising it, who are trampling it underfoot. How do you trample the blood of the covenant under the foot, underfoot? By trusting in bangles, trusting in things like white tablecloths and pulpits and Bibles and churches and buildings, trusting in those things instead of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. And you identify, I'm that sinner, and he died for me, and I'm going to respond to that, and I'm going to respond to only that. That is what secures, that's, that's where you hear the click of the seatbelt. And you push it in, you hear the click. That's what secures it. So Jesus is the vine, and the branches can be cut off, can be cut off, out, off from him and out of him. John 15, 1 through 8. Christ is the root of the Abrahamic tree. And Paul tells Christians at Rome that they can be cut out of it just as the unbelieving Jews had been. Romans 8, uh, excuse me, Romans 11, 18 through 24. And, and Christians can be cut out of the olive tree for just the same reason that the Jews were cut out of the olive tree. What was that? It was unbelief. My father was a rabbi. My grandfather was a rabbi. My great-grandfather was a rabbi. We've been here forever is exactly the same as my daddy was a preacher, my granddaddy was a preacher, my great-granddaddy was a preacher. It's the same thing, same sin, same presumption. And Paul, Paul turns to the Roman church, and he says, 
I'm beginning to see signs in you of exactly the same thing that destroyed the Jews. I'm beginning to see that you're reacting with the same kind of haughtiness, the same kind of pride. You're starting to, we, we are, a, a, we're, not, we're not a podunk church in some jerkwater town. We, we, are the, we're, we are a church in the capital of the empire. We're starting to puff ourselves up. And Paul turns to them and says, you don't support the root, the root supports you. You only stand by faith. The Jews fell because of unbelief. You need to watch out. You need to guard yourselves. You need to guard your hearts. So, Paul tells the Christians at Rome that they can be cut out of it for the same reasons. And what kinds of things were written down for our example? 1 Corinthians 10, 6. But when, you, when you read through 1 Corinthians, it's like listening to one half of a phone conversation and the Corinthians had sent a bunch of questions and Paul's just working through them. And one of the, and one of the problems apparently is the Corinthians are saying, well, too bad for the Jews because uh, we, we have... A sacred, we have a sacred drink. We have, we, we have a sacred initiation rite. We have sacred food. We have a bunch of good stuff. What does Paul say to them? 1 Corinthians 10. He says, pointedly, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers, notice, our fathers, he's speaking to Gentile Corinthians, and he says, our fathers did what? They were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Corinthians said, we have Christian baptism. And Paul says, well, the Jews had, they were baptized. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. We have the Lord's Supper, we have wine, we have bread. Paul says they, had, they drank Christ, they ate Christ, Christ followed them around, and what does he say? But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, he says, these things were written, the, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The Bible tells us to draw parallels between our condition and that of the Jews in the wilderness, not to draw contrasts. God, God doesn't say, now the Jews were an olive tree and you Gentile Christians are a peach tree and everything's different. Or they were an olive tree and you're a stainless steel tree out of which branches cannot be cut. Doesn't say that either. It's all the same tree. It's all the same Jesus. It's all the same word. It's all the same gospel. And it's always the same response that is required of every man, woman, and child from the beginning of the, of the history of the world to the very end of it. Christ is set before you. Do you believe or do you not? It's binary. It's simple. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you not going to follow Jesus? So the Christ in whom we must believe has always been a present Christ. The Christ in whom we do believe is a Christ who is near to his people he is here right now with us. If, if Christ was with the Jews in the wilderness, following them in the rock that accompanied them, if Christ was within the Jews in the wilderness, in the rock, how is Christ not present here with us? Christ is present with us right now. Are you following him or are you not? Are you surrendered to him or are you not? Are you a Christian down here or are you not? 
You've perhaps heard the old evangelical, old evangelical cliche of those who miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between here and here. The distance between a lot of people miss heaven by 18 inches. Christ is near to his people. He's near to us right now. And if you're distant from him, it's not because he's not here. It's because you're not here. Do <laughs> you see that? If, you're, if, if you are checked out, if you're somewhere else, if, you're not, if, you, if you've got a barrier up and that barrier is the barrier of unbelief, it's not because Christ is not here. It's because you are wanting to be somewhere else. So whenever this is preached, whenever this is proclaimed, whenever the vicarious blood sacrifice that is offered to his father is preached, there's only one reasonable response to it all, and that is, come, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Come, let us kneel before the Lord, our redeemer. Come, let us kneel before the one who redeemed us and saved us and, and sanctified us and set us apart for his holy work. Come, let us, let's come to his table. Let's come to his table in faith. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus, who shed his blood for us so that we could be here right now. I pray, Father, that we would understand more fully what, you've, what you have given to us and what you are giving to us as we gather around this table. Father, I pray that we would all respond in true and sincere evangelical faith. Think of this table as a picture of all that God gives us. We are at God's table now, but there is a sense in which we are never absent from God's table. All that we have is from God. And therefore, it is all meant to be food for us. So what must we do with the gifts of God? This meal teaches us. We give thanks for them, and we share them. In a moment, I will give thanks for the bread and the wine, and then we will share them. Remembering Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, sharing Jesus. So too, we must all do the same with the gifts we receive day by day. Give thanks, remember share. But what about the hardships? What about the sickness? What about uncertainty, strained or broken relationships? Everything comes from the Lord, and we are continually at his table. So, will you complain at the Lord's table? Is Christ a poor host? Is Christ a poor cook? No, he is the best host, the perfect cook and he continually prepares a table for you. So think about your week, your month, your year, your life. Grab hold of it in your head and in your heart, all of it. The good things, the hard things, the messy things, and when I lift up the bread in a minute, I want you to lift it all up to God in Christ. You are not lifting it up on your own. You are lifting it all up in Christ, who was lifted up for all of it. He was lifted up on the cross in order to draw all men to himself. And this drawing of all men to himself included you, and it included all that is in you, all that you are. How could Christ draw you to himself if it did not include your pain, your suffering, your failures, your uncertainty, your fear? It had to include all of it. So when I lift up the bread, you lift up your lives, your tomorrows, your yesterdays, your everything. And when I give thanks, you give thanks for your life in Christ. Believe in Christ. Trust him for all of it and give thanks to him for all of it.
And then as I break the bread and the men begin to pass it around and you pass the trays down the rows, ask God to show you how to share what he has given to you because these are the gifts of God. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. We've heard this morning that the call to worship, the call to bow before the Lord our maker is a call to enter in to his rest, to find rest, to, to stop striving, to, to stop fighting, to rest, to find rest before God. And we've, we've heard it's certainly possible, it's totally possible to hear that call week after week, month after month, year after year, grow up hearing that and still not be there, still not have that rest. And you say, well, what, what do I do? What do I have to do? Jesus said that the work you must do the work that you must do is believe in him. Believe in him. That's it. Believe in him. And hear this, hear this from Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Receive now the blessing of your God, the peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you forever. Amen.